Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. In this episode, we talk about how your current reality is a mirror of your inner beliefs and the three easy and powerful steps to change that, the scientifically proven effects that love and kindness have on your physical body, David's own journey to self-love and vulnerability and the role his dog Oscar played in that, and finally, what quantum physics can teach us about ourselves. This episode has so much wisdom, I don't even know where to begin, so I'm really, really excited for you guys to listen. Um, I think there are potentials for some profound shifts during this episode, so let's jump in. Dr. David Hamilton is the author of eight books, including How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, Why Kindness is Good for You, and his most recent book, I Heart Me. After receiving his PhD in chemistry, he worked in the pharmaceutical industry, developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer. It was there that he discovered the placebo effect, which got him very curious about the mind-body connection. He now speaks around the world on topics like how the mind affects the body, the placebo effect, how love and compassion affect the heart, and even how visualization physically impacts the brain. All right, great. Welcome, David. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So so I'd love to get started by hearing a bit about your story, your background, and what brought you to where you are today. Hey, well, I, I have a PhD in what's called organic chemistry. Now, it's nothing whatsoever to do with organic food. Okay. <laughs> an, an, orga- an organic chemist is like, it, do you know that, you know, we have Lego bricks you know, it's those little coloured plastic bricks yeah. that you stick together to construct, you know, different shaped objects. Well, organic chemistry is a bit like that, except the bricks are atoms and, you know, the, the green one might be a carbon and the red one might be a hydrogen and a white one might be an oxygen. And we construct what are called molecules. So so f- for my, my sins, I feel like... Yeah. Uh, for qualifying as an organic chemist, I ended up working in a really one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, and people like me are employed there to build molecules, to build drugs. So I used to stick atoms together to to literally build medicines for heart disease and cancer. And where, although I loved that job, I, I loved the science of understanding the way things really work. You know, at a chemical, um, atomic level. What really captivated my interest, much more so than that type of science, was when we tested the drugs. When you make a drug, let's say you've spent quarter of a billion dollars in research and development, and you're ready to to show the world that a drug works. So you give it to 100 patients, and then you, let's say you find that 75 out of the 100 make an improvement, and you're, you're celebrating, whoa, this is a fantastic drug, love it, great. But then to prove the drug works, you've got to also compare that against the placebo. Some people call it a dummy pill. It's basically made of, of sugar and chalk and glue. Well, not actually glue. You know, the, you know if, if you make a cake, you have to bind the ingredients with an egg. So 
the glue in a drug is a binder and it binds really the chalk and the sugar and the other things. But but if you find, let's say, 75 out of 100 improve on a drug, it wasn't uncommon to get 50, 60, 70, 74, 75 improving on the, the chalk-sugar mixture, the placebo. And I found that absolutely astonishing, you know, that we would spend, let's say, a quarter of a billion dollars researching and developing a medicine and you can sometimes, depending on the medical condition, the nature of the trial, you can have just as many people improving on a placebo because their own belief, their own consciousness, their own way of thinking is producing enough chemical changes in their body and chemical and hormonal changes around the, around the brain and body that it's in some cases doing the equivalent job. And I found that absolutely astonishing. So, so after four years, I, I resigned from the industry and decided that for me, what really lit my fire, lit my fire inside really, was writing about and researching and teaching people that you have the power within, you have a massive amount of power within yourself to shape your own health. Amazing. So what was that, um, what was that process like of you writing that book? Um, were you doing research on your own? What was that? Tell us about that. I, I really just immersed myself in medical journals and biology journals and psychology and sociology journals. I, I spent months, you know, going through thousands and thousands of scientific papers, really, and and looking for evidence initially for the mind-body connection, you know, initially to show everyone else that uh, what you think about, what you feel, what you believe, it brings about changes in the chemistry and the hormones and the biology of your brain and in your body and in many cases that can lead you in the direction of wellness and in some other cases that can lead you in the direction of sickness and I really just wanted to to find a way in ordinary language that my mum and dad and my auntie could could read and understand and really realise that their own thinking can have an effect on, on their bodies, on their health. Amazing. And this was How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so if people listening, if if there were, I don't know, maybe three things that you wish that they knew in terms of how their thoughts, beliefs um, affected their body, what would you what would you want them to know? First, I would say that the direction you point your mind in has a huge effect. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, you were to think of someone you love. And just for a moment, think of a time when that person showed you love or affection or compassion or generosity that you f- and you could find yourself going, oh, that is so sweet. Oh, and thinking of that in that kind of way. As you do that, your brain and your heart are actually producing a little hormone called oxytocin. And what oxytocin is doing when it gets to your heart and your blood vessels is it actually changing the structure, the shape of your blood vessels. It's causing them to expand. So your blood vessels, the actual blood vessels themselves increase in size. And that means that your heart no longer has to work as hard to push blood through and it causes a a drop in your blood pressure. At the same time, oxytocin acts like a little sweeping brush. And it sweeps the crap out of your blood vessels. And, and when I say crap, what I'm meaning here in particular is two families of, of chemicals that lead to cardiovascular disease, to heart disease. And these are free radicals and inflammation. Most people have heard of inflammation. You know, it's the if you cut yourself, 
it, it becomes inflamed. The, the redness and the swelling is inflammation. It's a vital part of the immune response, but what most people don't realize is it also occurs on the inside of the body as a side effect of unhealthy lifestyle or a side effect of too much stress. And so oxytocin sweeps all that, it sweeps much of that out of your blood vessels. It also sweeps free radicals. Free radicals are these kind of little aging chemicals. They're the things that are partly responsible for the wrinkles on the face and they, they, they cause aging of cells. And yeah, so, so by producing oxytocin, we sweep the crap out of the blood vessels. We also reduce our blood pressure. For that reason, this little hormone oxytocin is called the cardioprotective hormone. But, but let's wind back a bit. Bear in mind, we produce this through thinking of someone that we love. We point our mind in the direction of love, kindness, affection, compassion, empathy, generosity. And, we're, and by thinking through a little chemical reaction in the body, we are actually changing the shape of our blood vessels and sweeping harmful substances out of our blood vessels. We're doing that with our minds. Isn't that absolutely astonishing, Susanna? Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. So just becoming mindful of the direction that you point your mind in. Now, this is a no-brainer in some respects because we all know that if you point your mind towards people that you don't like and, and issues that you have with people and situations, you cause stress. So by the, almost the opposite process, you generate hormones of stress which cause damaging effects in the body. So all we're learning through the mind-body connection now is that the power is... You have so much power within yourself to choose the direction you point your mind in. If you ch choose to point your mind towards kindness and compassion, love, affection, generosity, you have very health-giving effects all throughout your cardiovascular system. And so I, I think understanding that is, is extraordinary. The other thing I would say is, the other, if I was adding an extra point, would be, uh, number two would be that your brain does not make a distinction between real and imaginary. So... If you imagine something or do the actual thing, to your brain it's the same thing. You know, there's, there's a great piece of research at Harvard that had volunteers play a sequence of five notes on a piano. So basically using each of their fingers, and their thumb and their fingers, literally going up a scale and down a scale, plunk, 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 plunk with each of their digits. And they did this for two hours and five consecutive days. They had their brain scanned each day. And the area of the brain controlling, connected to the finger muscles had massively grown in size, like a muscle. But amazingly, a separate group of volunteers, instead of moving their fingers physically, they didn't move them at all. They did it in their minds. So they just imagined moving their fingers. And amazingly, when they had their brain scanned after five days, their brain in the same locations had also massively grown in size. And if you put the brain scans side by side, you could not tell the difference between who had actually played the notes and who had just imagined playing the notes. In other words, when you, uh, uh, when you do something or think of doing the same thing to your brain, it's the same thing. Your brain does not distinguish uh, real from imaginary. Wow. So I, I, I think that is... Uh, if the ordinary person could understand that, what does that say... Uh, for our capacity to heal. And then I would say number three then would be many people around the world, and I've interviewed so many people, I, I've given so many talks and had so many testimonies, I put many of them in the book actually, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, that you can actually harness this understanding that one, the mind affects the body, and two, the brain doesn't distinguish real from imaginary, to start imagining yourself well and to, to make it really short and concise. Uh, the most common type of visualization that people use is they make an internal image of illness and they convert that internal image into wellness. 
and they do it repetitively. They turn illness into wellness and they do it over and over and over again, just like the people in the piano study went with their fingers plunk, 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 repetitively for five consecutive days. So people apply this to cancer, you know, heart disease, arthritis, diabetes, injuries, muscle strains, bone breaks, you name it, people apply visualisation too. They turn illness to wellness. So that would be my three things. Uh, understanding that you can point your mind in a particular direction, especially towards, for example, love, compassion, kindness, etc., and have amazing effects in your body. Secondly, the brain doesn't distinguish real from imaginary. And third, you can harness that to imagine turning illness to wellness on the assumption that your brain and body will be processing what you're imagining is actually happening in, for real. God, man, there's so much in there. Okay, so so Juana, on that third <laughs> one, imagining illness to becoming wellness. So what does that look like? Are you imagining yourself ill and then yourself well, or does it matter? Or uh, The most common versions of this, and I'm saying the most common, you can only do it right. <laughs> I, I, prefer, I prefer using that term than you can't do it wrong. Okay, I think okay. There's something more <laughs> inherently more positive about you can only do it right. Yeah. Providing your end product is wellness, you can only do it right. The majority of people who do this what they actually do is they imagine they're inside the body. So let me give you an example. The most common visualization technique used by people who have cancer is they imagine the tumors shrinking smaller and smaller and smaller until they've gone. It's like going, going, gone. They might imagine them like snowballs melting on a hot stove. Or they, if people are undergoing chemotherapy, they imagine the chemo drugs as little piranha fish going and nibbling nibble nibble until the tumor's getting smaller and smaller and smaller till it's gone people getting radiotherapy imagine the radiation is bolts of lightning going chum, boom, 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 and burning chunks out of the tumor again the tumor's getting smaller and smaller and smaller now notice that in each case whatever the strategy the person is is taking illness as the presence of a tumor and wellness as having no tumor there and they're in their own individual way they're imagining the tumor getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it's gone so illness becomes wellness by the shrinking of the tumor and the reason i mentioned chemotherapy and radiotherapy is because when i'm talking about using the mind to heal the body i'm not meaning that we should discard medical advice you know i'm a very great believer in integrative medicine where we take the best of everything. And I think for years we've we've been told that you just take your drugs and that's it. And then gradually we learned that it's also important to, to eat well. And then we learned that it's important to manage your stress. And we've also learned that it's important to take exercise. And what I'm suggesting is we add to the health equation, if you would call it that, uh, your own mind. And understanding that your mind has an effect on the effectiveness of everything else on the, the effectiveness of the drugs, on the effectiveness of the, the sleep and the exercise and all these kind of things. And if we add the mind to the health equation, then whatever therapeutic intervention we're making, whether it's mainstream or holistic, we still activate this strategy of shrinking the tumour smaller and smaller and smaller until it's gone, For if we are using cancer as an example. Yeah, you know, this makes me think of, um, you know, another Hay House publisher, Anita Morjani, the uh, Dying yeah. to Be Me, right? And I, which, yeah. by the way, that book was so profound. But one of the parts that really stuck out to me in particular with this conversation, um, and for those who haven't read the book, this fabulous book about a woman who had, I believe it was stage four cancer and had a near-death experience. But in her journey of cancer, she she lived in Hong Kong. She spent time in 
um, India, I believe in the U.S., and all these different areas as part of her healing process. And I remember her saying that uh, when she was the healthiest was when she was in, in India, and it wasn't because she was in India, but it was because when she was there, she was shielded from all the other opinions about what is healthy. So when she was in the U.S., she would hear, you know, or if she was in Hong Kong, she would hear like pork, you know, meat is good. And then she would hear, no, meat is bad. Then she would hear, you know, she would just hear so many different beliefs that when she was in India, because she was away from friends and family and um, internet, everything, and she was only focused on on yoga, Ayurvedic, et cetera, it was the belief that that was it and the sole belief that that was it, that she was the healthiest she had been. I don't know if you remember that, but... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Anita, Anita's a friend, good friend of mine. We, in fact, Anita wrote the foreword to my, my new book and, and she often talks about, you know, the amazing power of consciousness, the amazing power of the mind. And absolutely right. It's when you take yourself out of that environment, as, as Anita did, where you're no longer living with the mindset that everyone else has, that this is bad, this is good and all that. And instead, your own mind itself is focused on wellness. So it's like turning illness to wellness instead, you know, taking yourself out of an unhealthy environment, whatever that environment might be, and find yourself in a place or an environment where you're only focused on wellness, then you can only be helping yourself. Gosh, so powerful. Now, I don't know how much um, you can get into this, but one one thing that always fascinates me is the integration of quantum physics, right, Um, Mm. of of this idea of choice and multiple uh, possibilities and observer effect, right? This, yeah. um, you know, I don't know how much research you've done into it or how you could speak to it, um, but it's a topic that feels applicable to what you're talking about of how our mind affects matter. Yeah, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that a consciousness is not inside your head. And I know that the mainstream science opinion is that consciousness is inside your head. So that which you are, your being, your essence, is a side effect of brain chemistry. And there is no scientific evidence of that, actually, uh, despite the fact that many people think it's a fact. It's actually referred to as the hard problem, uh, meaning no one has a clue it's that hard. Right, right. i.e. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, a, a growing body of scientists are, are trying to work with a different assumption. What if consciousness is not inside your head? You know, because there's so many experiments that have been done over, you know, in the last 40, 50 years, even leading up to the present day, that are demonstrating an interconnectedness of people at a distance. It's like in physics, you, we see these experiments in entanglement when you find no matter how far apart a connected pair of particles can be, if you ping one of them, the other one instantly reacts to that ping. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pinging with my fingers here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in the same kind of way, you know, emotionally connected people, no matter how far apart they are, if one experiences something that you find that looking at the brain of the other, it instantly responds, it seems to be connected. And so it, those kind of experiments would suggest that consciousness is not inside your head. So a growing body of scientists are suggesting, well, if it's not in your head, where is it? The next logical assumption that that leads to is that that which you are is infinite. And the brain itself is more like a receiver, like the way a TV uh, receives uh, radio waves or the way that, uh, the way that your, your broadband box hub, whatever it is, receives the Wi-Fi. 
or, or the way your mobile, your cell phone receives Wi-Fi kind of thing. And the, the brain is more like a receiver. So that which you are is infant. It just feels like you're in the body. And it, it parallels like an electron. If you go inside a piece of, inside your, your hand or inside your heart with a microscope, you find cells. Inside the cells, you find DNA. Inside the DNA, you've got the atoms. Inside the atoms, you've got your protons, neutrons, electrons, croutons and morons. No, there isn't croutons and morons, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are electrons there. But uh, but even we come to the the observer effect. Uh, if you look at an electron, if you try to study an electron, uh, when you switch your apparatus on to study the electron and detect it, it's called observing. But until you press on, until you actually detect or observe that electron, it is simultaneously everywhere in the universe at the same time, past, present, and future. And that's taught in many universities around the world. In fact, the, the equations that lead to having iPhones and computers these days only work out if you make the assumption that the electron is simultaneously everywhere in the universe at the same time. That's par- that parallels this new idea of consciousness, that which you are is everywhere. It just feels like you're in a body. And the reason why that is is because you have a body. You're observing yourself all the time. You're constantly, every time you breathe, every time you look at yourself, you feel your finger, you touch your skin, you're observing yourself. So it always feels like you've pressed on in the lab and you're detecting the electron. It always feels like you're observing yourself. It's only when you have a near-death experience like Anita Mirjani, for example, or in a transcendental experience of meditation where you experience yourself uh, as infinite. So that which you are really is infinite. It just feels like you're in a body. And leading on from that... I think the way the world really works, we just don't see this very clearly, is whatever you put your attention on is actually shaping the reality that you experience. And and I would say that ahead of you in time is many, many possible realities, many possible futures, all of which exist. Because everything that can happen does happen in some respect, if that which you are is infinite. And all that's really happening is our thinking and our beliefs are lining up with the most likely scenario in the future. So I imagine imagine fulfilling a particular goal. People call this the law of attraction. If I imagine something appearing in my life, then I increase the likelihood that that reality will be something, I will meet that reality. It doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. There's other competing influences. There's other forces that affect us. But we certainly increase the likelihood that I will have such and such an experience, if that makes sense. It does. And I want to come back to the scientific part of the, because this is something that I've always been fascinated about, is that the study of quantum physics parallels this concept, right? In that, um, that if we are made up of subatomic particles and quantum physics is the study of subatomic particles, then that is what we are made up of, right? And so I'm going to break it down in my understanding for our listeners who who may or may not know, and then I'd love for you to jump in. But um, so coming back to this observer effect, when you are observing um, an electron, here's what I've never understood. So it is everywhere at once, and then when you view it, it it affects how it behaves, right? How you expect it. So going back to the wave or particle, right? Whatever you expect it. But how do they know what it does when we're not looking at it? Is that a computer or? They they don't know what it does. They they just make an assumption that it's undefined. You know, it is simultaneously, Uh, it's everything. It's It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And not only that, it's every when. 
it's past, present and future. In fact, you know, some of the recent experiments I find are absolutely mind blowing that add weight to the fact it's not just everywhere. It's also past. It's also in the distant past and the far flung future is some recent experiments. They, they modelled the old favourite, uh, the double slit experiment, I think most people are aware of, the cornerstone of physics, of quantum physics. You fire light at two slits, and if you if you switch the, the apparatus on, then you will see the light as little bullets, little particles going through one slit. If you don't switch the detector on, then the light will appear like a wave. It will go through both slits at the same time, uh, so it became a wave or particle. But here's the thing. If What if you don't decide whether you're going to switch the apparatus on to measure a wave or a particle? If you're not going to switch the detector on, what if you don't make the decision until after it's gone through the slits? And here's the thing. It turns out that the decision you make after it's gone through the slits actually determines what happened at the slits, in other words, a few seconds ago. In other words, a decision you make in the present affects what seemed to have happened in the past. And, it, and what that would suggest is we're actually creating the past. Now, here's the little paradox. How can you create the past if it's already happened? It turns out the, the way this is explained now is that just like there are multiple futures ahead of you, multiple possible futures, there's also multiple possible pasts. In quantum physics, they call it histories. So there's multiple histories behind you. When you make a choice in the present, what happens is you actually line up with a history or a past when everything that needed to happen did in fact happen to bring you to the point of your choice that you've just made. <laughs> Isn't that a mind screw? It is mind. <laughs> yeah. But basically what it ultimately means is the past, present, and future are connected. The present is affecting the past just as the past is affecting the present. The present is affecting the future. The future is also affecting the present. And all things are connected in space and all things are co- all moments are connected in time. That's basically what it means. And that that which you are is infinite in space and time. You have always existed. You will always exist. There was no time ever in history where you did not exist. And there's nothing that you're not affecting right now with your mind. (laughs) So there. Okay. Just, just throw that out there. Yeah, yeah. Just put that out there. But if that is the case then what do we focus on? You know, that, that this leads me back to what my, you know, my guiding principle in life, Susanna, is whatever you do, do it with kindness. If that which you are is affecting all things at all times, all of the time, then my inner sense is that do everything you can do in every moment that you do it with love and kindness. And therefore you can only be helping and benefiting everyone else and, and the whole world existence whatever you want to call it. And that's that's my guiding principle in life. And, and part of it derives from this understanding that you're affecting everything all of the time, even if it doesn't appear to be so. I mean, and, and to your point, you're, you're affecting past, present and future, not only to those around you, but for all of time. <laughs> Pretty much. Right, yeah. That's a big responsibility. <laughs> yeah, not, not for responsibility. <laughs> I, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite in my plan to talk about all this <laughs> during this, this chat. <laughs> it's funny how things unfold in a conversation, isn't it? I know it is, but I love this stuff. I love exploring this concept that is so hard to wrap your head around. But I think when you're, you know, so much of our 
brains need to, you know, need the science to back it up. And so when you, you could say, oh, that sounds crazy. I don't understand that. But when you say, okay, wait a minute, this is happening in science. This is a proven thing. Um, and so then all of a sudden you take a step back and say, okay, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? What does that mean for my life? Um, and how does that affect day to day and my practical, how I live? And it's, um, it's important to know about this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for me, all this way of looking at things, it distills down to a couple of simple principles. And as I say, one of them is whatever you do, do it with kindness, you know. And the other one is recognizing that how I feel and how I perceive myself. I, I, one, I, one of the things I've noticed, this is, you know, the project I've been working on the last couple of years is on self-love. And if I am affecting everyone all of the time, then in everything all of the time, then it's very important for me that I see myself in the correct way. And what I mean by that is many people, if you really dig down deep into the reasons for many of the problems that most people face in their individual lives, my experience is that most people's problems distilled down to a lack of self-love and when I say self-love you can read self-esteem or feelings of self-worth they're mostly interchangeable for the most part and and me I've had major challenges in my life with self-love despite my job you know my job being you know a writer and public speaker you know self-confidence for example which is connected to self-love was has been a major a personal a difficulty and, and challenge for me and so if I can heal myself, make myself more whole. In other words, instead of seeing myself as small, seeing myself as I really am, then I can be more effective and more positive and influential in my spreading of, of love and my thinking and actions of love and compassion and kindness in the world. Whatever you do, if you can work on self-love, whatever you do, uh, whatever you feel, whichever relationships you're in, everything you touch ultimately uh, you're doing it with far purer, clearer, effective energy, I think. So if I were to take, bring this to a, a practical, so when you said, you know, whatever problem you have, I know for, and this is specific to me, um, and I imagine my listeners, um, let's say at work, right, your boss drives you crazy or coworkers or, right, sort of the typical office environment. Yeah. You're stressed out. You have too much work to do. Your boss isn't doing enough. People who work with you don't do enough, whatever it is that, right. Those are, I think a very general problem. So how do we, um, apply self-love to a situation like that? Yeah. Well, you can, you can take a step back and you can ask yourself, why is it that I'm in such and such an environment? Because what you often find is the world around you is reflecting back on you, how you feel about yourself or the truth about your own feelings about yourself. And if you find yourself in an environment where, for example, a, your talents are not being seen, then perhaps you're, despite how much you might protest, your consciousness is really close to the stage one of self-love, which says, I am not enough. And so what you're experiencing in the world is a struggle to be enough. Because right? I, I, I've written in my book, I Heart Me, I've written about a, the three stages of self-love. Stage one, I'm not enough. Stage two, I've had enough. Stage three, I am enough. And, and me, most people I know 
spend most of their time, not every single moment, there's, there's different environments, different people where you, you feel differently, but most people spend most of their time at stage one, I'm not enough. And what you see is life became, in many ways can be a struggle to be seen or to be enough. And so what we do is we understand that this is this, what, the, what my working environment is showing me is that I am living, for the most part, in or in this environment, I'm living a state of conscious of I am enough. So the challenge is I need to move to I am enough. And there's, there's many ways, uh, you know, I, I call this the self-love gym, just like you can go to the actual gym and train some muscles. There's many ways that you can approach this, many different exercises in the self-love gym. But what, one of the simple ways to move up to stage three is decide, firstly, that this is a self-love thing and I'm going to sort this out. The moment you decide that, you move to stage two, I've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough of it being this way. Now, the, what you need to do is keep pushing out the other end. One of the simplest strategies I could ever share with anyone is based on the, the understanding that a self-love, when it comes to the brain, neurologically, um, you can treat it as much, as much biology as psychology. In other words, what that means is when you're running a program that says I'm not enough, that is actually wired into the architecture of the brain. Now, it's actually very easy to rewire the brain. And one of the simplest ways you can do it, and this is for anyone listening, it's so simple, is become aware of your body and how you stand. And what happens is when we're lacking in self-love, in a particular environment where we feel I'm not enough, if you become aware of your body language, what you'll notice is your body language is not really conveying self-belief and self-confidence. It's not really projecting in an inner value in yourself. So maybe the shoulders are tense, the, the facial muscles are tense, your jaw is tense, your spine is curved. And, and what you have to do is become aware of your body, of how your body is. And every morning, just for two minutes, Practice walking about your, your bedroom or your bathroom or a quiet room and practice walking with your spine straight, your shoulders relaxed, your face facial muscles relaxed, focusing on your spine, your shoulders, your head, straight ahead and your breath and saying, how does it, and, and trying to get a, a body language, a way of walking and standing that says, I am enough and practice it two minutes a day, just two minutes every single morning before you go to work and get comfortable with this body language that says, I am enough. It might be straight spine, just a comfortable way of shoulders, a, a, a nice relaxed stride. And see if you practice it for two minutes every day. Over a few weeks, it starts to become part of the architecture of the brain. And what happens is you then find yourself speaking differently, behaving differently. People start changing around you. And the reason they're changing around you is because they're seeing a difference in your body language and their body, their brain and their body language is reacting to a change in you and as you begin to wire in if you like the state of I am enough which is actually happening you know you're actually wiring into the architecture of the brain a state of I am enough by simply teaching your body a new way of standing and walking that says I am enough you're retraining your brain networks so as your brain begins to wire in I am enough your body begins to reflect it as a habit and then what you find is your environment begins to shift because neurologically you're wiring I am enough and as I said earlier uh, you will find that your environment will always reflect back on you how you feel about yourself so if you're wiring I am enough into your brain you'll start to feel that emotionally and what you'll find 
through very logical mechanisms, sometimes as if by miraculous changes, things begin to shift in your working environment and your relationships and all your different environments. And all that's really shifted is the world is now confirming back on you how you actually think and feel about yourself. Wow. David, you are throwing out this major <laughs> life wisdom that is that is so profound. I love that. And it goes back to your, the mind-body connection where originally we talked about how the mind affects the body, but now you've shifted it to the body can also affect the mind. Absolutely. And that, that's what, what few of us realize. And it's so simple, isn't it? If you feel happy, then notice what happens on your face. Your, your facial muscles show your happiness. And similar if you feel stressed, so the little muscle between your eyes compresses and your shoulders go up, your jaw goes tight. And what's happening is your body is responding to your mind. Few people realise it goes the other way as well. What you do with your body also affects the mind. And if you keep practising it, it begins to wire the networks of the brain. It's oh, amazing. I'll tell you a, a funny anecdote. When I was in labour with my first child, um, and I was going through painful contractions and my husband looked at me and I was smiling. I had this huge smile and he was like, why are you smiling? And I said, because smiling re- releases serotonin in the brain. So I'm yeah. going to smile. <laughs> so yeah, I had this like, smile plastered on my brain, even though I was in brilliant. so much pain. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> and, and, that's, and it's so true. And, and the thing is, see, by being aware of it, it becomes so much more powerful. Actually, using, you know, some people have said to me, uh, but is that now just faking it? Uh, and there's two ways to look at this. Sometimes when people, there's a thing called smiling depression. When people feel depressed inside and they try to pretend that everything's okay, and that's called smiling depression, you're doing it with no power. But if you understand that the act of smiling causes changes in serotonin in the brain physically. and causes a change physically, in physically yes. yeah. causes a change then it becomes an intervention and there's a world of difference between faking it when you don't really know what's going on and then intentionally smiling when you know that it's affecting the, the brain it's with it's when you do when you you do something with your body with a full-on conscious intent that's where the power lies. And this is where the power lies to shape the networks of the brain towards I am enough, the stage three of self-love. It's a full-on conscious intent, a full-on conscious awareness that what you're doing with your body is wiring your brain networks. That's where the real power lies because then you're not defeating it with a little thought oh, that this is, this is me just faking it. You know, you actually know that it's happening. So you're doing it with conviction. Amazing. So you can almost think to yourself, okay, whatever situation you're in, if it's not what you want it to be, and you think, okay, what would the person who I want to be, right, who already has whatever it is I want, yeah. how would they physically show up, right? Would yeah, they stand absolutely. taller? Would they smile more? Would they, yeah. right? And then you start to embody that just from the beginning. Absolutely. And, and you're using the fact that the brain networks wire if you do something repetitively. Coming back to the piano study I, I talked of earlier is, you know, we played five finger notes on five consecutive days. And it's the repetition, repetition, repetition that wires the networks of the brain. This is why I was explaining with the wiring in self-love, wiring in the state of I, I am enough, is we do, we practice for two minutes every single day whether it's morning, noon or night. I, I prefer it in the morning. I mean, I, I do this in the morning. I actually walk around in my, my room just for a couple of minutes because I've, I've had to learn self-love. In, in writing I Heart Me, 
I I wrote it for myself because I had to learn self-love. So this is an exercise I've had to learn because I spent so much, despite the fact I'd written seven previous books and given and spoken for tens of thousands of people around the world, I was spending a lot of my time in a state of consciousness that says I am not enough. And so, so much of my life then was a struggle to be enough because I was living from a state that says I am not enough. And it was a change within myself in large part through practicing this simple exercise that led to so many of the the changes in my environment. God, amazing. I mean, I think for people listening, you know, that, that, that one piece of wisdom that whatever environment you're in is a mirror of whatever you are feeling about yourself is, is the, is the beginning is the, is the first step right is the awareness yeah. is to the say awareness. it's not a victim i'm not this i'm not that and it's not and it's not to beat yourself up you know not to say oh my boss is not good it's not that it's just okay here's what's happening so here's the information it's just information right yeah it's information and now i know the information now i can change and so you go information awareness step one step two start embodying physically what that person would do um, and then from physically, then you start to act differently, right? And then the environment changes to you. Absolutely. Is that it? Right. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, spot on. I love this. Spot on. <laughs> love. I love this. And, and it's so simple. One of the things I love about this little strategy of using your body is this This is actually, I'm finding this appealing. This book is actually stretching beyond my normal genre, if you like, because it's so simple that... People who've never read anything to do with self-help absolutely get it. And it's funny because here you have uh, my environment shifting. So I've written seven previous books and they've done okay, but not, you know, huge. But yet as I have shifted within myself, it's no surprise that this book is selling far more than all of my other In fact, from what I can tell at the moment, just from the first two months, it's selling more than all of my other books combined. You're kidding. Yeah. And I think it's just because my environment is shifting in response to my shift within myself. So my environment is reflecting, my world is reflecting back on me, uh, the change within myself. God, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Especially when you find your own work working, right? Yeah, yeah. And the the thing is, and the the beauty of this is, this is the first time when I wrote something, I wasn't trying to write something that I thought people wanted to hear. I was writing something that was significant to me. And and part of my, you know, I got a great help from my, my dog, Oscar, who joined, who came into my life the week I started working on the book. And he passed away at two years old on the literally within a few days of me finishing the book and you know it was only five months ago and I still struggle with accepting that every day and and the only way I can get through at the moment and still cope with his loss is with that feeling inside that Oscar came into my life for a reason because the fact that he, you couldn't even, the timing was so precise, he literally arrived in my life in the week I started the book and he passed away on the week that I finished it. And it feels like he came into my life to help me, perhaps to save me from myself. I mean, not not for the book. The book is a side effect. He came into my life so that I could become who I needed to be. The book was just something that parallel that came out as a side effect of my change a within myself. A manifestation, yeah. Yeah. 
the book was a manifestation of the change. But one of the things that I learned through spending so many happy, joyful times with Oscar is that it doesn't really matter how people perceive you. You know, and so I, in some of my other books, I I had been influenced with trying, with saying, I, I think I should write it this way or that way because maybe that's, people will prefer that. But this time, I, I wasn't thinking that at all. I was thinking, this is how this is playing out in my life and this is what I feel I need to say and this is the way in which I feel I need to say it because this is the experience I'm having this is the 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 chapters that are relevant to my journey in my life at this particular moment in time and so the book was is clean in the sense that there's nothing about a what I want people to to get out of it it's just I it was just it was a manifestation of my growth that came along with my my little dog Oscar, and it just the book just popped out the other end oh, kind of thing. So beautiful! I love that story. I I you know, but I also have a dog, um, so I, I I understand, and I'm so sorry for your loss. But I I Thank there's you. no question um, of. The role that an animal plays in our life and the, the massive teachings that they bring with them. Do you know? It, I, I'd heard people say before, but un, until Oscar came into my life, I, I didn't know that it was possible to fall in love with an animal. But I absolutely fell he, hook, line, and sinker, head over heels with Oscar. I mean, I, I think about him every single day. It was only five months ago, and in fact, I, I was giving a talk at a hay house. I Can Do It conference, Ignite conference a few months ago and I was talking about Oscar and the, the role that he'd played and I was talking about vulnerability. One of the subjects that I wrote about actually in the book was about having the courage to show vulnerability, to show up as yourself is one of the biggest statements to the universe of, that you are enough, that you could ever make. And I was explaining how I understood this through my experience with Oscar when I found out Oscar had had a very... A, a very a form of cancer that was very rare and also highly aggressive that was almost nothing we can do to stop it and and I learned vulnerability practically like that and I, I was trying to I was trying to explain to the audience and I, I burst out crying oh, boy. Oh. And, and and it's funny because the audience received a practical demonstration of the power of vulnerability because in the past I might have felt so embarrassed and self-conscious. I would have tried to take deep breaths and and, and pretended maybe I was looking up at the ceiling or some way of of de- deflecting it. But instead, I just felt this is this is who I am right now, and and I'm not going to pretend that Oscar wasn't so important in my life. So I just allowed myself to cry. And in those moments of having the courage to show your vulnerability, what you're really saying is, I am enough. Yes. It doesn't matter if you accept me. It doesn't matter if you like me. It doesn't matter if you all walk out the, out the auditorium right now. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. In this moment, I am being me exactly how I have to be. And damn it, that is enough. And you know what happened is the audience just, the empathy and the connection is was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And then people would lean forward. I could see people welling up as well. And... The connection with the audience was extraordinary. People were coming up afterwards and sharing their stories of loss and and telling the stories of their dog. They were emailing me, tweeting me, Facebooking me and stuff. And it was just such a beautiful thing. And it was funny how 
another this is another way that Oscar has forever changed my life you know having been in my life I'm experiencing things in a way that I've not experienced them in the past and I'm, and I'm just allowing it to happen because it's part of who I am and it's part of what Oscar came here to teach me about having the cho- being taking the choice to be myself whatever that may be and not yeah not for the opinion or shoulds not, not, or anything not none for of it anything like but because choosing to be me as i am just as i am is a statement to the universe that i am enough and as long as you're doing that then your reality will reflect back on you exactly how you feel about yourself David, I love it. If I could jump up and do a big um, standing ovation, I would. <laughs> I love it. What? That's a message to end on. Thank you for today and sharing all of your wisdom and thoughts and stories and um, and your heart and your vulnerability and inspiring us to do the same. I am incredibly grateful. Thank you, Susanna. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thanks, David. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you, or our Twitter page, the Twitter handle also is cosmos in you, and of course, at our website, cosmosinyou.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.